right, so this is chapter 19. Uh, we're finishing up verses 17 through 21. Uh, we started this section in chapter or in uh, verse 11. And verse 17 starts with, then I saw. Now, whenever we see a then, it's connecting with something from the context before. It's a sequential marker saying that this happens after something before. And the thing that this is happening after is Revelation 19.11, which uh, has a similar construction, and I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. Verses 12 through 16 gave us the explanation of what happens when Christ returns, and now we are following on later in the sequence, so this is after Christ's return and all that comes with his return. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, come assemble for the great supper of God. Now, the sun was mentioned. This was a, uh, an angel standing in the sun. And we might remember back to Revelation 16, 8 through 9, which was part of the bold judgments that probably only came a few days before this um, section in, verse, or in chapter 19. It said, the fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given uh, to it to scorch men with fire. So during the bold judgments, the sun was there and present, and it was uh, made to scorch all the people on the earth. They were already dealing with um, all the water turning to blood and then having terrible sores. And then, of course, the heat element would only make both of those things worse. But then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened. They gnawed their tongues became because of pain, and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. Now, this is a pretty common theme that occurs throughout uh, pretty much all the revelation that speaks about the very last days. And this is something that uh, definitely distinguishes the difference between the rapture and the return of Christ, uh, because the return of the Messiah or those that day in which he sets down his um, foot on this earth in order to take possession of the world is always uh, accompanied by darkness. He returns after the world has been blacked out. Um, and this is a very physical, literal darkness that's going to come on the earth. Uh, see. Now here it says his kingdom. Uh, we did look at this back in Revelation 16, but just want to reiterate, his kingdom became darkened. Uh, the extent of the uh, false messiah's kingdom is not his palace, but everything over which he rules. And if we remember back to Revelation 13, the extent of his rule said, the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore, and then I saw a beast coming out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and those are different than the Stephanos. Stephanos are victor's crowns, diadems are ruler's crowns. So these are 10 crowns of uh, regal authority. And on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon, which is Satan, gave him his power and his throne and great authority. Um, earlier in one of John's epistles, he wrote that. We know that we are of God, speaking to a uh, church congregation, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So when the false messiah came on the scene, 
Satan delegated to him all of the authority that he has over the hearts of men over the entire world. So this kingdom of the Antichrist or the false Messiah that was darkened was the entire world. Matthew 24, 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the son of man will appear in the sky. And that's part of the reason, I believe, why it will be dark in the last days so that the sign of the son of man will be clearly visible around the entire world. Um, and this is um, put in sort of a progressive uh, verb tense where we expect this coming of the sign of the son of man um, to be something that takes some period of time. Um, it won't be an instantaneous thing, but something that we see coming. Uh, then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And indeed, Jesus had told his disciples about this early on. Um, in Matthew 16, he said, truly, I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here, speaking to his disciples, who uh, will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Uh, and then in uh, just the next verse, six days later, so less than a week, uh, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and his brother and laid them up on a high, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. This is what it looks like to have Jesus coming in the power of his kingdom, and this is what the sign of the Son of Man will be at the end of days uh, when he returns to a completely blacked out and dark earth. Uh, the transfigured Christ coming in his kingdom will be uh, what signals the end. Uh, <clears throat> they will see him coming in the clouds uh, of the sky with power and great glory. And his, uh, he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect uh, from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. So we see, and we looked at this a few weeks ago, uh, when he returns, he returns not only with his saints, the uh, church, the resurrected church, uh, but he will also come with a host of angels, and these angels have different tasks. Here in Matthew 24, 31, speaking to uh, Jews in a Jewish context, he is speaking to them about their regathering. But here in Revelation 19, 17, we see that at least one of his angels will have a different task, and that is to hearken all of the uh, the uh, carrion in order to come and feast on the dead flesh of Christ's enemies. So this angel standing in the sun, this is after Christ's return. So when we have the sun returning, it's only natural. The earth is no longer darkened as it was at the end of the tribulation. Christ has returned. The sun is temporarily restored. Um, and this angel is seen uh, in the light of this sun, he cries out with a loud voice, telling all the birds which fly in midheaven, uh, come assemble for the great supper of God. Now, this event is not a new revelation in uh, Revelation 19.17. That's why we don't get much detail about it, because it was already well described in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 39 is one of those places where it's described. 
Uh, it says, as for you, oh wait, no. Um, it is a similar, uh, similar event in Ezekiel 39, but not the same one. Um, as for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to every kind of bird, to every beast of the field, assemble and come gather from every side to my sacrifice, which I'm going to sacrifice to you as a great sacrifice on the mountains of Israel, that you may eat uh, flesh and drink blood. You will eat the flesh of mighty men and drink the blood of the princes of the earth as though they were rams, uh, lambs, goats, and bulls, all of them fatlings of Bashan. So you will eat fat until you are glutted and drink blood until you are drunk. From my sacrifice, which I have sacrificed to you, you will be glutted at my table with horses and charioteers, with mighty men and with all the men of war, declares the Lord God. This is a little different in its setting, and it's a little different uh, in its um, in its agents. Here it's on the mountains of Israel. It's uh, not just the birds, but it's every beast of the field. The timing is also different. This is set in Ezekiel 39, which is the Gog-Magog war, which we don't see in Revelation. We see a reference to it, but it's used the same way that John is using this um, assembly of the great birds. Uh, at the end of the tribulation period uh, in order to reference a time of judgment and a time of sacrifice. Uh, the rev or the tribulation period is actually going to be bookended by similar judgments. Uh, the first one, Christ will be invisible um, and will destroy the armies of Gog and Magog that come against Israel. Those will burn for seven years. Uh, but then after the tribulation period, uh, a similar judgment will occur. But it is mentioned in Matthew 24, uh, Matthew 24, 21, for then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. So it sets the time period. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So for the sake of Israel specifically, um, Mortal life on this earth will be spared so that not everyone dies during the tribulation period. So contextually, we are looking towards the end of the tribulation now. Then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect, again speaking of Israel, in the last three and a half years of the tribulation period, warning them not to go out uh, to uh, anyone who claims to be the Christ or shows false um, signs and wonders, because the coming of the Christ will not be mistakable. Uh, the whole world will be blacked out, and he will come uh, in the light and glory of his kingdom. He has told them ahead of time what that sign will be so that they can know it. That's what he means, behold, I have told you in advance. <clears throat> so if they say to you, behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go out, or behold, he is in the inner rooms. Do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. And then he adds this little phrase that ties it together with Revelation 19.17. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. They're expecting this slaughter and this gathering of the birds uh, to come and pick through the remains of the unburied uh, enemies of Christ. Now, this was seen as a very insulting uh, manner of death to be left for the animals to pick through rather than to be buried. 
Uh, we saw that happen with Jezebel, where she was eaten by dogs and scattered as fecal matter throughout the desert. And we saw this in uh, some of the wars with Israel as well, where these men went out uh, to gather uh, the bodies of the uh, their men who had fallen in battle from another uh, city because they had not, uh, or that they would actually hung their dead up on a wall. Um, and Israel went to gather them so that they could give them the dignity of burial. These enemies that come against God are not given the dignity of a burial. Instead, they are feasted upon by the animals. And this, um, John, I think, is purposefully juxtaposing here with the marriage supper of the Lamb. So we really have two feasts um, that we see in Revelation 19. One is the feast of the Lamb, uh, where those who go into glory and to righteousness uh, will be allowed to uh, dine with him in the kingdom. Uh, but then on the other hand, we have those who become the feast, who become the meal for the, um, for the fowl of the earth. Matthew 22, uh, one of the parables of the Lord speaks uh, about this uh, feast at the end of the tribulation before the kingdom as well says, when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into out the outer darkness in that place. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. Uh, this one survived in a mortal body to the point where the... Uh, where the wedding feast was about to begin uh, before the kingdom um, in order to inaugurate the kingdom, in fact. Uh, but he was not allowed to participate in that feast uh, because he, didn't, he was not clothed in the wedding garments. Isaiah 61.10 uh, is probably the illusion that, Matthew, or that Jesus is drawing from there. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. The problem with this dinner guest in Matthew 22 is that he has not clothed himself with the righteousness of Christ. He survived physically to the end of the tribulation and into the 75-day interval between the end of the tribulation and the beginning of the kingdom but he will not be allowed to participate in the kingdom. All right, so who is eaten here during the feast of the fowl? Revelation 19.18 gives us a long list so that we can see the totality of those who are uh, consumed there. It says, uh, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of commanders, and of mighty men. So we see the uh, warriors and the uh, generals and um, the kings uh, over this, or who had come against Christ, those who are aligned with the Antichrist, and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, so the actual, uh, the actual footmen. But interesting here that he includes horses. This is the only time where horses are included in these lists. We have a couple of times throughout Revelation where we see um, all of those who are affected by the judgments or who blaspheme God. This is the first time horses are brought into it, or in fact, anything that's not human. Um, and it it uh, probably has to do with the instruments of war here. 
Uh, they'll probably be riding on horseback uh, in during the tribulation period, especially towards the end, uh, when all sorts of uh, man-made tools and mechanics have been rendered useless by the bold judgments. Might have to return to more rudimentary forms of war. Uh, so it could just be highlighting that in those last days, it will return to those rudimentary warfare tactics. Um, but it may also have to do with the type of transition that's going on in history. Uh, for that, we can go back to Genesis 7.17 and remember the totality of that destruction. Uh, the flood came upon the earth for 40 days and the water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. The water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth and the ark floated on the surface of the water. The water prevailed more and more upon the earth so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. The water prevailed 15 cubits higher and the mountains were covered. And all flesh that moved on the earth perished, birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth and all mankind of all that was on the dry land, all in, those, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life died thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land from man to animal to creeping things to birds of the sky that were blotted out from the earth and only noah was left together with those that were with him in the ark so if you remember uh, we talked about this probably months ago at this point but uh, one of the uniquenesses of the bold judgments was that everything in the seas and in the rivers died those were the only things, the only creatures, the only animals that did not die in the flood. Um, all the breathing animals, the land-dwelling animals, even the birds, they all died in the flood, everyone who was not in the ark. So then we specifically had the uh, marine animals brought up in Revelation 16 that they died because of the judgment of turning all the water into blood so that we could see how this uh, final judgment was exceeding even the judgment of the flood. And now here we might have the animals um, brought back in at least one category of animals so that we can see a little bit of a shadow here uh, that he really is uh, covering all the bases of judgment. Everything used uh, in opposition towards God is destroyed. Uh, Genesis 9-11, we saw that a covenant was established with Noah and that covenant uh, is going to govern uh, the whole course of the world all the way from the flood period until the end of the tribulation. The Noahic covenant is going to be in effect. I establish my covenant with you and all flesh uh, shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. Uh, God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all successive generations, I set my bow in the clouds and it shall uh, be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the clouds and I will remember my covenant, uh, which is between me and you and every living creature of all the flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy the fl all flesh. Uh, when the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and it, uh, every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth now we learned, uh, or we learn uh, in Genesis 9, we just read Genesis 3, a few uh, chapters earlier, where we learned the importance of taking every word of God in, uh, uh, at face value and with weight. 
And here he's not saying, I will never again destroy the earth, but he's saying, I'm, I'm never going to destroy it again with a flood. Never going to destroy it again with a flood. That with a flood bit is important because that kind of implies that he is going to destroy it again. He's just not going to use the flood as a tool. Um, and his promise is the rainbow and the highest density of the use of rainbows in all of scripture happened in Revelation uh, 8, no, Revelation 9, and in, sorry, Genesis 9, and in Revelation. It's mentioned, I think, twice outside of these two books, and in these books it's mul mentioned multiple times, uh, because both are times of destruction of the entire world. And so in Revelation 4.2, when we um, look into heaven right before the destruction um, begins, it says, immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne, and he who was sitting was like a jasper stone with a sardius in appearance. There was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. So we are remembering at this point that God brings uh, grace before judgment, uh, but judgment does come and judgment is sure, but he is faithful to his promises as we see uh, judgment about to unfold on the earth. We know that he will not destroy it again with a flood. And in Revelation 10, just before the midpoint of the tribulation, uh, which is uh, which begins the day of the Lord, uh, we again see a rainbow promising the earth um, that it will not be destroyed in the same manner as it was before. I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, and the rainbow was upon his head. His face was like the sun, and his feet were like pillars of fire. And so we are remembered of our, we're reminded of our doctrine of civilizations from 2 Peter 3. By the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. <clears throat> so there is a really strong comparison here, and it's brought out in Matthew 24. The coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah, where all flesh on the earth was destroyed, um, and only believers were left. Just like Noah uh, and his seven family members, uh, everyone who was uh, not a believer perished, and in fact, believers possibly perished as well. Only those who were in fellowship with God, who were obedient to him and got on the ark, they were brought into um, the new civilization. And so it's going to be at the tribulation period where there is going to be a cleansing. Uh, and only believers will enter into the kingdom. It says in Matthew 24, 38, For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. There will be uh, many alive at the end of the tribulation period who think, oh great, we survived, um, but they will not survive the 75 days between the return of Christ and the establishment of the kingdom. And at the end, we get the flesh of all men, free men and slaves, small and great, so we know that really no one is left out of this um, judgment. Mm -hmm. Revelation 19, 19, 
and I saw, again, repeating that, um, that phrase, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies, everyone that had assembled to make war against him who sat on the, uh, the horse and against his enemy, his army. Uh, so this beast and the kings of the earth, these were probably the kings that had aligned themselves with him, um, amassing um, the hearts of mankind towards uh, the false messiah and their armies. In Revelation 17, 12, we saw that the 10 horns which you saw are 10 kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour probably just designating a short period of time. Uh, these have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. Revelation 16, 13, I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouths of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like a frog, for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole earth to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. So these kings were gathered by demonic um, agency. Daniel 7.23, thus he said, the four, fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth. This is speaking of the false messiah's kingdom, which will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns, out of his this kingdom, 10 kings will arise, and another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one, being Israel, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, uh, speaking of the, uh, the Jewish law and the Jewish feasts and festivals. They will be given into his hand for time, times, and half a time. Uh, time being singular, times being plural, half a time. So we've got one plus two plus a half, that's three and a half. Uh, but the court will sit for judgment and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated and destroyed forever. And finally, Psalm 2, which uh, everybody knows Psalm 2, but no one really pays attention to when it's going to happen. It's actually a prophecy of this final war that we've looked at a few times already, but I'm bringing it up because it's in context. Why are the nations in an uproar and all the, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Notice here, they've assembled against the Lord against God, and they have assembled against his anointed. The Hebrew word for anointed is Meshiach, uh, which we have transliterated into Messiah. The Greek word for anointed is Christos, which we've turned into the English word Christ. Um, not only have they assembled against God, but they've assembled it against his Messiah. And they've done that because they've accepted a different Messiah, the false Messiah, uh, this is not talking about just generally throughout world history. These kings are opposed to God, though we can say that that is a general principle. Throughout history, this psalm is specifically speaking of the final battle between man and God. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, 
But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. God's going to say, oh, not a chance. I have put my king over this earth. Their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse uh, and against his army. So that uh, against or who sat on the horse is looking back to uh, Revelation 19.11, where we see Christ returning on a white horse. These armies had assembled against him, and they did not survive. Zechariah 12.6, um, actually Zechariah 12 through 14 is all a prophecy of this final battle, the last um, elements of Armageddon. Says, in that day I will make the clans of Judah like a fire pot among pieces of wood and a flaming torch among sheaves, so they will consume on the right hand and on the left all the surrounding peoples while the inhabitants of Jerusalem again dwell on their own sites in Jerusalem. So during the time where Israel is regathered and looking especially towards the end in that day, uh, God is going to supernaturally strengthen the fighters in Judah. Uh, the Lord will uh, also save the tents of Judah, uh, the temporary housing of those people of Judah. Uh, that's probably looking at to where they'll be in Edom um, at Petra, so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem will not be magnified above Judah. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David, and the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. And in that day, I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. So this is going to come when the Antichrist, the false Messiah, uh, and all of his armies, these gathered kings, are going to come against Israel, uh, primarily for the purpose of extinguishing them, Satan's demonic purpose is going to be for extinguishing the people of Israel, whose responsibility it is to enthrone the king of God's choosing. Uh, but the <clears throat> socio-political reason uh, may be because Jerusalem is an opposing um, kingdom to, uh, to Babel or Babylon. Zechariah 14, behold, a day is coming for the Lord. Uh, when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, houses plundered, the women ravished, and the half of the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. In that day, there will be no light. Again, uh, every time the day of the Lord is mentioned, uh, we get this reference to it being a total blackout. The luminaries will dwindle, for it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will come about that at evening time there will be light. And in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea. It will be in summer as well in winter. So he destroys these kings that have aligned themselves together with the false messiah against God. And then he is going to seize the beast, which Revelation 13 told us was the false messiah, and with him the false prophet. Together, these are the Antichrist. 
Revelation 19, 20, then 17, 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. Now, that's a loaded phrase. Uh, the beast which you saw was and is not and is about to come up um, speaks probably of his demonic resurrection. And those who dwell on the earth whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. So when he is uh, resurrected demonically um, by the power of Satan, they're going to look at him and wonder, and that wonder has the uh, connotation of amazement, uh, the same kind of wonder that uh, people looked upon Christ with at his resurrection. This is going to be one of those uh, things that uh, brings, um, I guess, the hearts of man. Uh, to put their faith in the false messiah as a messiah. Remember, he's a counterfeit. He's trying to do everything that Jesus did, and he's even going to use the sign of resurrection. Revelation 17, 11, uh, the beast which was and is not is himself also an eighth and is one of the seven, and he goes to destruction. Uh, this anomaly is just kind of an impossibility in language unless he is not only a seventh king, but an eighth king. Uh, because he was struck down and then resurrected, becoming the eighth. Uh, but we looked at that a few, actually about a year ago now. But it's going to be important when we look at the 75-day interval, uh, because he is going to be resurrected a second time. Uh, but I'll, I'll wait until we get there. Revelation 19.20, uh, the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast. Together, these make up the unholy trinity, uh, Satan who confers his power to the beast, the beast who delegates power to the false prophet. The false prophet uh, directs worship towards the false messiah. He does so by means of the abomination of desolation, setting up an idol in the temple um, in order for the, uh, the, the worshipers of the Antichrist to worship at that idol. Um, and then he directs, uh, the false messiah directs worship to Satan, just as the Holy Spirit directs worship towards Christ, and Christ directs worship towards God, and God glorifies his son, and his son operates by power of the Holy Spirit. We have this false trinity, Satan trying to establish the same, uh, the same authority apparatus as God has, because Satan has aspirations to elevate himself above the throne of God. Um, so it says, uh, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast. And now there's a particle here. Um, it's a Construction, which in Greek is called epexegetical, which basically means it's describing what came before it. So those who had received the mark of the beast, uh, even those who worshipped his image, um, it's saying that those are the same thing. Uh, context indicates that from back in Revelation 13, we saw that uh, those who worshipped the beast received the mark. So those who received the mark are those who worshipped his image. Uh, then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. 
He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men, and he deceives those who dwell on the earth because the signs because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound and the sword and has come to life. So remember, that's one of the uh, instigating factors uh, for the worship uh, of this false messiah as a god is that he will be resurrected. After the resurrection, they will establish uh, idols for the world to worship. He causes all the small and the great, the rich and the poor, the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now, that's interesting when we see the false prophets uh, ministry on this earth is a ministry of disability, one who disallows um, for power in the world system um, if they are opposed to it, whereas the Holy Spirit is an empowering ministry on those who are part of the kingdom of God. So the um, economic power that's going to be given to the cosmos system by the, uh, the third person of the satanic trinity is going to be one of disallowing power to those who would otherwise have natural power to participate in an economy. Um, but it's all uh, on the plane of natural things, created things. Whereas God, by means of the Holy Spirit, empowers the believer, not by disallowing um, those who would otherwise have natural ability, but by supernaturally empowering those who otherwise have no ability um, to do the works of God. Um, so it's just an interesting juxtaposition there. First John 2.22 says, Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Uh, this Antichrist uh, spirit is really the opposite spirit than that which is um, in believers. Um, in fact, this First uh, John 2, uh, 18, 19, and 20 gives us that difference between these two spirits, whereas the believer has the anointing, uh, the charisma in Greek, the unbeliever has the antichrist spirit, the antichristos. Uh, that comes from the same Greek word Christo, which is to uh, anoint for power, to anoint for ability or um, status or position. Uh, kings, prophets, priests, uh, even objects used for sacred purposes in the temples, those are all anointed uh, for that task and for that duty. So we've, we've got two different kingdoms here. We've got the cosmos system, Satan's kingdom, uh, the natural things of the world empowered by darkness. And we've got God's kingdom, God's system with his anointed one empowering um, those with the charisma and Satan's anointed one empowering the antichristos uh, members by disallowing uh, others to participate in the kingdom. So there we had the beast the false prophet, the false messiah, and the false prophet. Uh, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. 
Uh, that's why we're going to have to come back to this passage once we get into the 75-day interval, uh, because there is what some would point out as a contradiction, um, but there's no contradictions in scripture. Uh, we can understand how he is both slain at the return of Christ in Habakkuk 3, and how he is thrown alive uh, into the uh, lake of fire which burns with brimstone by means of the, uh, the second resurrection. But we'll come back to that. Revelation 14, 9 uh, says, Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and received a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in the full strength of his cup and of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. So we know that eventually uh, those who received this mark will join uh, the false messiah and the false prophet in the lake of fire, though we will learn from Revelation 20 that they will not join them until after the millennial kingdom. Um, during the millennial kingdom, they will re remain in Sheol. And then when the final judgment is handed down at the great white throne judgment of Christ at the end of the millennial kingdom, all the wicked dead from all generations of all the earth will join the false Christ and the false prophet in the lake of fire. That's from Revelation 20.10. After the thousand years, the devil who uh, deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So they're all going to join, excuse me, the, uh, the false Christ and the false prophet, uh, but not until the end of the millennial kingdom. For a thousand years, those two human individuals will be the only occupants of the lake of fire. Isaiah 61.10 says, Then they will go forth and look on the corpses of, of the men who have transgressed against me, for their worm will not die, and their fire will not be quenched, and they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. Uh, this torment in the lake of fire is an eternal torment. Uh, their worm does not die speaks of the eternal aspect of the human soul. The human soul is not something that can be snuffed out. It is an eternal creation. Uh, it's not an infinite creation because it has a beginning. Uh, but is eternal because it has no end. The soul can be separated from the body. The body can die, uh, but the soul cannot be extinguished. Uh, Revelation 19.21, the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. Remember, his sword indicated that he comes in judgment. Um, he is, uh, they are all killed, in other words, by the judgment of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Um, so for this, uh, Psalm 45, my heart overflows with a good theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and your majesty. 
and in your majesty ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp. The peoples fall under you. Your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. And you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. Now, if you remember from last week, uh, an overwhelming sum of the Psalms refer to the millennial kingdom or the tribulation period, especially the return of Christ. Whenever righteousness is sought, uh, David or the other writers of the Psalms don't just look for a temporal righteousness, they look for the eternal righteousness that comes when God rules over this earth by means of his intermediary king, a human king um, who will obey his will perfectly and rule the earth on behalf of God, fulfilling his creation purpose and bringing maximum glory to God. All the birds were filled with the flesh of his enemies who did not survive to the kingdom. All right. Does anyone have any questions or complaints before we continue? Can you show the uh, slide before the Matthew 24? Yes. Matthew uh, 24. Times. Um, Let me see. It was, um, so make sure that was the right scripture. Matthew, yeah, 24. Was it the second Peter one? Because there's Matthew um, 7. Let me find another Matthew 24. Uh, I had a Matthew 22, Matthew 24 here. Matthew 24, 21. Hey, look here, I'm looking at my pictures real quick. Matthew. Uh... Yeah, it was, I think it was Matthew 24, uh, 23, 25. Okay, this was the one just before 23, 25. Or did you want the Ezekiel 39 passage before this? Uh, I had a question, but I couldn't take a picture of it fast enough. Let me just put this <laughs> a second there. Okay. The great tribulation such has not occurred from the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Um, okay, yeah, this is my question. So it says, for then there'll be a great tribulation, such mm -hmm. as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, or ever, nor ever will. Quote, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days would be cut short. Mm -hmm. Don't some people use this scripture to show or to support their theory, their argument, or their view that Christians will go through part of the tribulation as opposed to a pre-trib stance? Yes, but they, uh, they do that by ignoring the context of Matthew 24. Uh, the church was not in existence, uh, was not even a concept that had been taught yet at this point. Uh, it's not until two days after Matthew 24 um, that the church is first, uh, or that the coming of the church is first taught to the disciples. And they're not even taught uh, specifically what the church will be 
in fact, the, the church kind of gets established and on its way before ever they're told exactly what they're in. Um, Ephesians 3 kind of explains that from Paul's perspective that um, the, the church is something different. It's a unique entity. So what they're doing in Matthew 24 is they take this and say, for the sake of the elect, they say that means the church. But it would have been absolutely impossible for the disciples to ever get that conclusion from Jesus' statement here because they had no idea what the church was. They did not know that was coming. In fact, you even get to act one and they're ready for the kingdom. They say, Lord, is it now time for you to establish the kingdom? They're not looking for a church age. They're not looking for a different um, body of believers saved by the blood of Christ. Uh, they're looking to go right from the kingdom of Israel to the kingdom of the Messiah. The elect in Jesus' words, and this is how language works. You don't speak from your own context. You try to uh, speak to the understanding of those you're speaking to. The elect for all of the Old Testament was Israel. Um, so that's just kind of one of the deficiency of, of the church age is we just try to make everything apply to us, um, even if that's contextually impossible. So, so you're saying basically substitute here, elect, you say, but for the sake of Israel, those days would be cut short. Yeah, yeah. Because that's what he's talking about. It, the elect um, as a concept of predestination is iffy. If anything, it's it's almost always used as an, an elect group of people. Uh, for example, the body of Christ is elect to glory, but the individuals aren't elect into that body. Just like Israel as a nation is elect for glory, but only those individuals who have individually placed their faith in the coming Messiah um, will experience uh, that benefit of election. So elect speaks of a group here, and it speaks of a group that's already in existence uh, because Christ doesn't explain what elect means. He operates on the basis of their pre-understanding, which is that Israel is the elect. Because gotcha. in general, it uses the same language. It talks about them as the elect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay.